0: welcome to the dairy farmers digest a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming each episode we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business i'm your host keith Schweitzer, and i hope you enjoy this episode Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. Uh, Today is uh, something I, I really enjoy talking about, and I'm going to get a little bit outside my depths and when it comes to calves and calf nutrition, but uh, we've got a great guest today, uh, and Aaron Coonan. So Aaron is the owner, one of the owners of Mapleview Agra here in Ontario. They are a milk replacer uh, manufacturer, amongst other things, but uh Aaron, why don't you uh, say hi and maybe give us a little bit of background on you and Mapleview? Yeah, thanks for having
1: me, Keith. It's a it's a pleasure to get on here after uh, saw fifty episodes, so that's that's impressive. Yeah, we've been we've been in the milk replacer business since since 2012. Uh, my family, uh, my father Brian, has been raising cattle since uh, 2001, and his grandfather was uh or his dad was a my grandfather was a dairy farmer as well. So. I've kind of grown up around agriculture. Uh, we still have around 2,000 head of cattle on feed, along with the uh, the milk replacement business, and then we have an animal health business as well. So, yeah, excited to to be on today and and talk about something that I'm certainly passionate
0: about. Oh, that's excellent. I know about a year ago we got to tour your manufacturing facility and uh, your research barn. So maybe just touch a little bit on what you guys do with the research barn. It's uh it's not too often that uh you come across these companies that are doing a lot of their own research with their with their own cattle I know a lot of stuff is you know university based but uh, to see what you guys are doing there is pretty exciting
1: yeah so we have a, a facility with four rooms in it segregated with each housing 64 calves so we actually just went through a, a recent renovation just to be able to to monitor things a little bit differently uh on a little bit more of an intensive basis so now we're able to track individual feed efficiency uh, as, as well as water intake. So we have a water meter for each calf um, and just very monitor very closely as far as, you know, what kind of health outcomes we want to look for, um, feed efficiency, overall growth, overall health of the animals, and and just finding ways to support uh, what we're doing in the market, I think is, is something that we value. And uh, it doesn't come without headaches and, and a lot of work, um, and, and growing pains to get to the point where we are now, obviously, uh, we made a a large investment in the, in the facility, but, uh, the things that we've been able to learn, how we've been able to adapt in the market, uh, and kind of be a leader in that sense has been, uh, very, very exciting for us.
0: Yeah. I know you guys do, uh, do a lot of work there on like, not only your own products, but I know you guys have done some outside trial work for, uh, other companies as well, which is, uh, Definitely, uh, it's neat to see coming from a from a farm background and you guys kind of getting over in the, like a little bit more research, but still getting some of those practical results out of it. I know uh, stuff with universities is always very controlled. And I know you guys do a lot of controls there too, but it seems like it's more of a, a commercial setting than maybe a research setting.
1: Yeah, certainly have um, probably more sample size. Than what you would see in uh, in more of an intensive situation, such as a university, uh, which I think is is helpful when you're looking at you know outcomes such as overall growth. Um, just because of the deviation, when you have a smaller sample size, it's that much harder to find a statistical difference at the end. So just having the sheer numbers um, makes it also more challenging to get some of those intensive measures. Uh, whether it's you know taking it. I guess one step further. So yeah, I would say for our, from our perspective, we're looking at it as more of a, you know, a feed them and weigh them kind of thing and, and look at the big picture of, of health and performance and things like that.
0: That's good. Uh, but the reason I guess we got you on the podcast today is talk a lot about what's going on with calf health and some feeding programs and, and what you guys are seeing out in the countryside. I know uh, every year kind of creates its different challenges. I, I, was looking at my truck the other day and it was filthy dirty and I got told by an old boy a long time ago that uh, anytime your truck's dirty from going down a gravel road, it's not uh, necessarily a great environment for calves. So uh, it got me thinking about that over the last few days. And uh, I know I've, I've been hearing a bit of pneumonia challenges and some things that are coming off the, whether it be the weather change or, you know, it could be, you know, calves born to heat stress, things like that are cumulative effect, I guess. But uh, what are you kind of seeing out in the countryside? These days,
1: yeah, I think just from conversations with with fellow farmers uh, over the last couple of weeks, everyone's kind of saying the same things. Like, you know, are, are you struggling with with pneumonia? You get cold nights. Friday was twenty degrees, right? So it's I mean we had a we had a frost last night, and obviously it dropped below zero. So it's it's a challenging time of year. I think part of it is also, you know, we've been building kind of bug pressure since last winter. There's been nothing to sort of kill it off. Um, so just from a, from a bug pathogen perspective, you know, we've been kind of building, 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 and then all of a sudden now we have a, a high load of, of bugs, but then we also have a stressor of a, a temperature change, uh, potentially higher, you know, moisture in the air, and then you get things cooling down, stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a challenging time of year. There's no question about it, but I think we always kind of look forward to either being consistently cold or consistently warm, the, the up and down makes it, it's super challenging.
0: Well, I know, like just with the temperature change, like you're talking 20 degree swings in a day. We typically don't get that in, in the summer unless you get like, some real scorcher days, but in some real kind of cooler nights. But that's typically more, more I guess, reserved for the spring and the fall where, you know, like this morning, minus four, minus five, and <laughs> a couple days ago it was 20 <laughs> degrees. Like it just makes you pull yep. out what hair you have left on your head to try and figure out some of this stuff with these calves. So,
1: Speak for yourself, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, so like in your kind of outlook on on what you see, is there still a lot of talk or a lot of people kind of weighing the options, I guess, on limit or ad lib feeding? Like what's your perspective on, on that kind of thing right now?
1: I mean, I think it's always the perspective of what what the farmer has in mind. Like what, what are the goals? What are we looking to do, right? Are we looking to drive, you know, as much – Pre-weaning growth as possible by hammering home as much milk as we can, uh, because then it's it's a different discussion than someone that you know is feeding twice a day only has a three-liter bottle to work with, you know doesn't maybe have the labor or the system in place to get to that three X feeding. So I think it it all depends on you know there's there's economic pieces in there too. You're Mm -hmm. you're front-loading an investment for a potential return in in first lactation. So I think like a lot of the discussions that 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 we've been having. Uh, with, you know, fellow farmers, customers, whoever it may be, is I think you have to develop a program, you know, not to stop at day 63, day 70, day 56, whenever you're weaning. I mean, we can push milk, we can push 14 liters at, you know, 28, 35 days and and really drive home the milk. Uh, But then we also have to look at the weaning period, you know, how much starter intake are we getting when we're feeding those really high levels? What does that do to our weaning period? So, something that we've been kind of talking about is, is we should have basically a longer weaning period, depending on how high you're going on milk. So if you're feeding six to eight liters, you know, you could probably wean them over two weeks. Right. So we always kind of kind of the, the rule of thumb would be two days of weaning for every liter of milk. They max out at, so if you're maxing out at 12 liters, we we should be tapering them off for twenty-four days. If we max out at eight liters, we should be taking off for sixteen days kind of thing. So I think it's 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 a greater discussion about, you know, what are we looking to do and what are we working with as far as infrastructure labor closing.
0: So in your opinion, like why why does that I guess rule make sense? Like is it just that that transition from milk chloric intake to transitioning on to starter, like like you just see these ad ad lib calves maybe eat a little bit more starter all the way through and then some of these high high plane nutrition calves like and by high plane nutrition i mean large volumes of milk
1: yeah i think the biggest piece is like you said you're 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 offsetting calories with milk that you know they might start searching a little bit younger for some of the grain you know potentially some earlier rumen development just because they are consuming grain kind of looking for they're a little bit more hungry you know, there's other conversations. What, what level of, of fat and energy are you supplying? Are you feeding whole milk? Because that's going to suppress starter intake a whole lot more mm-hmm. than, than say, a, a 20% milk replacer just because the overall level of energy you're feeding, how they're feeling, they're feeling full. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's typically you're getting them onto the starter a little bit later potentially in life and just that room and development piece. So if we want to get them onto starter, or, or drive milk and get them onto starter quick. Yeah, you know, we just have to make sure the rumens ready to handle that. They're consuming enough they can they can process that and, and utilize it all before we pull them right off now.
0: Yeah, I know that's uh it's always a dirty word around a dairy. Or even any like even we've got a lot of integrated calf growers too. It's it's that transition off of milk onto solid feed is typically where we would see calves back off. And I think it's got better. It's it's still depending on the situation, is maybe not great. But uh, I think we've learned a lot over the past 10 to 15 years about, you know, rumen development. I think in the past, you just thought, well, you feed the calf to get it big enough and then you wean it, just cut it off of milk and it's going to start eating calf starter. But then I think as we get into these higher genetic animals, like it, we're just on a, we're on a tipping scale, right? Like you can only you can only push them so hard. And, and then all of a sudden you just pull the, pull the reins back on them or hit the brakes on them with milk. And then all of a sudden they're just, they're, they're just not eating calf starter and it takes them a few days.
1: Yeah. And I think another piece of it too, is, is like you said, 10 or 15 years ago, you were managing things differently, probably feeding a lot less milk. So maybe you could get away with it by introducing starter a little bit earlier, but another piece was probably that the day that calf was meaned it, or weaned, it was being relocated to the next facility too, right? Put into a group mm-hmm. with, you know, heifers that were four or 500 pounds, 200 pounds. Uh, and, and I think we're doing a better job as an industry of, of kind of grouping animals, moving them together, um, bringing them into situations that aren't going to be super stressful post weaning, um, and maybe even leaving them, you know, two, three, four weeks, uh, ideally four weeks post wean in, in that and, and then kind of move them as a group.
0: Yeah, and I know that's not easy to do in a lot of places. Like a lot of it's like, oh, let's get that hutch clean so we can get the next calf in there. And I think uh, one of the biggest improvements, and I think you touched on a really great point there, is is grouping because I've seen these the farms kind of grow over the years, and they were grouping. You know, we're going to wean this week. We're going to wean two, three weeks worth of calves, and I'll move them at one time. So then you get a big group. And I've had a lot of farms switch to you know groups of eight or ten after weaning coming out of say like a hutch and then going into a group of eight to ten. And it just seems like that transition's way smoother. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think part of that too is you you just don't have the stress of you know having animals that are way bigger, you know, way older, you know, fighting for bunk space. And there's so many different factors, diseases that, you know, they've never been exposed to all of a sudden, you know, have to deal with.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of times too when they back off when you kind of drop their caloric intake, like if they're not completely eating starter yet, I think you just open up a vector for disease. Like you cause a stress on that. So then all of a sudden some of those underlying issues that maybe you're just feeding through, you know, they had enough feed intake, whether it be from milk or starter, they just kind of got through. But when you take that, that nutrition away from them, I think it just kind of hammers on their immune system a little bit. And you see some of those pathogens uh, kind of rear their ugly head, like, especially the with things like Dublin around, like I, it really makes me concerned that this transition period, because it's one of those diseases that yeah, it could affect a young calf, but it seems like anytime there's a stress event, that's when Dublin kind of rears its ugly heads. So,
1: yeah. And I think, like you said, as, as the farms get larger um, and, and even honestly for, for some of the smaller farms, uh, I'm encouraging producers to, to find a way to, kind of mimic an all in, all out the best they can. So if they're on a computer feeder, you know, let's take two, three weeks worth of calves, fill that side, um, you know, maybe have four quadrants, fill a quadrant every two, three weeks, let them kind of stay stable, move them together. I think that's that's a, something that in, in our industry with the calf rearing side of things, you know, you're bringing calves from 30, 40 different dairies, you know, mix in some auction calves, you're bringing them all into one place. If we do that every week, we're going to have nothing but issues. So what we try to do is basically you fill a facility every four weeks, four to five weeks, and then you would fill it again, four to five weeks later, just so you can get them in, get them stable, make sure they're healthy and going before you're introducing anything else. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of issues is just constantly introducing new calves, introducing new stressors, bugs, whatever it may be. So I know it's always a question of infrastructure and labor and and those all play for sure, but it's just, know with with what we have at our facility how can we somewhat mimic that i think is is an important consideration
0: well and the dairy is an interesting one because like if you look at you know hog production or chicken production 99 percent of them are all in and all out like even when it comes to like nurseries or even just chicks going into a new barn like there's no way that a chicken farmer would have the barn half full of six week olds And then put a bunch of chicks in there because, you know, you're just cruising for disaster. And I think on dairy, we can learn maybe some of these things from the other industries that kind of, kind of cross that, that bridge between us where we're all still dealing with young animals and they all have, it doesn't matter. You're talking to a hog producer, a dairy producer or or swine or sorry, chicken producer, like all the bad things happen when you've got (laughs) young (laughs) animals
1: absolutely yeah and it's, it's not an easy certainly not an easy thing to conquer on a dairy um, but if but yeah just just finding ways to somewhat mimic that I think is is kind of where it starts and then if you're looking at building new facilities expanding whatever whatever the case may be then that's when you really need to kind of you know hone in on on how do we do this properly
0: yeah and I think that's the point too is that it's very difficult on dairy because we're in a continuous production cycle right where some of these other ones are everything so geared towards logistics on the processing end of things. And that all just filters all the way back down through the system where dairy, like we're always, we're always calving cows and we're always drying cows off. Like the production cycle just never, it never stops. So we have a unique set of challenges. And with the amount of money it costs to build now, like it's just, it's really hard to do everything perfectly so
1: mm-hmm. and and like you said when when the chick when the chickens leave you know when when the pigs leave you know they're probably washing out they're probably disinfecting they probably have a downtime period right and you yeah. look at the calving area you look at the you know even where the calves are whatever the case may be you know even when when we're cleaning there's likely to be you know animals going back in that day or the next day after right mm-hmm. and i think that's something that. That we also try to to do a little bit differently on on kind of the production calf side is is leaving downtime so even if you know you're not you know you're washing disinfecting but you know for that cycle to stop you need everything to dry out you need to give it a break give it a rest and then you know maybe a week later fill it back up so something that we've seen some producers kind of start to move towards is for example having a calving area you calve it for two weeks while the other area is empty, then you would start to calve on the other area and then kind of back and forth that way just to kind of help the load down because I think even if even if we can't eliminate it all, let's just find a way to keep the pressure down uh, yep. during those high-risk periods. So,
0: Yeah, it's just because it's so much money involved in making instru- infrastructure work for you. It's just like we don't see producers building a ginormous dry cow facility for that single purpose, because I don't think the the dollars aren't there on the other end to, to make it work. But you see lots of producers getting very creative with, you know, managing their calving pens and things like that. Like they're using lots of group penning where, you know, for the calvings for this week, go into this pen and the calvings for the next week, go into that pen. And there's, I wouldn't say they're cleaning them out by any means, but there's always, you know, fresh straw going in there and they're making sure you see lots of producers with little areas in like the corner of their calving pen, where they've got a quarter of a bale feeder in the corner and then you see a calf they dump it in there you know lots of producers have wheelbarrows and things by calving pens now where you know that calf hits the ground it gets thrown in the wheelbarrow and then at least the cow can get at it and you're limiting the amount of pathogens i guess that that animal can pick up from the pen so
1: yeah no i think that producers are definitely aware of it and and always always improving always finding ways to to do it differently uh, for what works for, for their own operation
0: yeah and i've uh I've been around the industry just a little bit longer than you. And it's one thing that, you know, it used to be where producers never produce enough heifers for their own. And there was always, you know, they're always buying in. And and at the time, like they could buy larger chunks of quota, things like that. So they could expand a little bit more rapidly. But one thing that I've noticed over the years is our heifer, heifer inventories have really grown and it's not necessarily... Because our industry's grown, I think producers have just done a way better job of keeping the calves that do hit the ground alive, you know, doing little management things like that and making sure that they're getting fed right in their in their early life stages and make sure they get transitioned well into the next the next production phase. So
1: yeah. And I think there's probably been a, a greater focus on mm-hmm. on the calf in the last 10, 15 years, uh just because people are understanding the value of it and and what it means down the road what we what we do now in the pre-weaning phase you know, how does that affect the you know the first second third lactation right so I think it's you know it's always a question of of economics right you're you're spending this time and this money early on what are we going to see later and I think there's now numbers to validate that you know you are going to see a return and I think there's you know new people coming in the industry I mean Dr. Anil might steal Dr. Trevor DeVries I mean guys like that they're they're investing time, energy, money. I mean, us as a company, it's the same thing. We're collaborating with the university numerous times in the year to to work on new projects and and actually get the dollars and cents and, and how does it affect the overall health of the the animals and how can we you know raise better heifers for that production period, right? So I think just the education and and the money being spent and invested in in the industry and in, in the young calves is it's it's been remarkable over the last five years. Specifically and potentially even out as far as ten years.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think producers have looked less of heifer raising as a cost and more as an investment in their future, which is a it's a really good mentality shift. And and I see it a lot with beef breedings too because people are cognitive of not trying to like they're trying to limit the their size of their heifer herds because it is bloody expensive feed them all the way for, you know, 22, 23, 24 months until they calve in and they can start paying you back a little bit. But it's, it's one of those things where producers are more than willing to spend the money in, in the right places if they can see a, see a return at the end of the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's, yeah, that's, that's where, 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 where we need to go. I think it's, it's long overdue that we've kind of got to that point where we're not making, you know, decisions based on that we're making decisions based on you know what, what's the future of our herd? What's the future of our business or operation? I mean, you know, the farms are getting bigger. There's there's a lot of money at stake now, and and I think that we need to understand, you know, what we're doing, um, and and being responsible with the uh, with this young with these young stock, just so that we can see a return later on.
0: Uh, just to kind of circle back on feeding, like in Aaron's perfect scenario, what would you see like a a one feeding program for a calf these days whether it be replacer or or whole milk
1: yeah I I kind of touched on it earlier I mean it's it's a hard question to answer because I think there's two types of feeding I mean you have uh, your grain fed veal market you have your dairy cross market you have your replacement heifer market so I think for me there's probably two or three different feeding methods that would be kind of my go-to and because I don't always think necessarily if you're looking at uh, an animal that's going to be harvested in, in 15 months, you know, front loading that investment yeah, no, m- might potentially look different than a, than a dairy replacement heifer that you're going to be seeing for six, eight years potentially in your herd. Um, so if, if I guess we'll start with the replacement heifer, if it's a replacement heifer, you know, I think that an ad lib feeding, once you get through the first two, three weeks, I think sometimes mistakes are made in the first two weeks by trying to, you know, hammer in 10 liters when realistically, let's, let's just keep this cap healthy. Let's keep it drinking. You know, let's get it through kind of the high risk potentially diarrhea period around seven to 10 days. Um, I don't think you're necessarily going to drive substantially more growth by feeding say 10, 12 liters in the first two weeks. So kind of feeding more of six to eight liters for the first two weeks and then increasing them up to uh, sort of an ad lib for two, three weeks somewhere around that 10, 12 liters. And then I'm an advocate for a a nice, you know, long weaning, I would say probably 21 to 28 days, uh, weaning them around day 70. That's probably where um, I would go with a a dairy replacement feeding system. Whereas if you're looking at for the grain fed veal market or for the, the dairy cross market, I'm probably more likely to max out somewhere around that eight liters, um, during that kind of three to six week period, and then trying to get them weaned kind of at eight weeks, um, at the latest kind of nine weeks. Um, so just kind of monitoring, you know, how much are we are we driving into the, the animals that are going to be harvested for uh, the meat market? Yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily know if you see a return by by feeding added milk, potentially delaying weaning and and rumen development, those kind of things. Um, just to to get a few quick easy pounds um, on the milk replacer, so that, that's kind of always my goal. And I think, and potentially even other situations, um, guys are trying to wean them even quicker. Whereas I'd be tempted to to take them out to 56, 63 days on the on the meat animal, and then on the replacement heifer, I would think by seventy days is probably a comfortable age to to get them weaned.
0: Yeah, I know on the the veal and the beef cross stuff, like it's it's one of those things, like you have to weigh the economic values, but you can also put pretty cheap gain on those calves at that time, you know, th- through milk and, and starter intake because they are so feed efficient, you know, up to the first 90-ish days like that, it kind of starts to taper off. But, you know, that first 100 days, like you can really put some pounds on those animals in that time if you if you have a really good feeding program.
1: Absolutely, and I think then, you know, I think there's a few other factors in the equation. I think looking at, you know, do we sacrifice a week of of yardage value because that animal's staying a week longer because we fed them less milk? Um, but what did we potentially save to feed less milk to get those pounds out of grain? I mean, you're looking at milk at say four dollars a kilo, looking at grain at you know thirty-five to fifty cents a kilo. Um, yep. at a three to one versus a two to one feed efficiency. But you know, so obviously you can put those pounds on a little bit cheaper, but with less pounds means more yardage. Uh, so there's there's so many things that factor in the equation. So I would say I would take kind of like a moderate to high milk um, in, as a standard for the, the meat industry. Um, but I do think if you can have, you know, I think you need enough milk to keep that animal healthy you know, to have it, you know, big enough when you go to move it to the next facility too, right? So it's definitely a balance and and more of an an economic decision based on today rather than than later or in the future.
0: Yeah, and that kind of changes. Like I know sometimes milk or milk replacer gets real expensive, and other times it's not. So I think you could kind of change your your change your your tune a little bit uh, depending on the economic drivers, like outside of the. Within the industry, I guess, and absolutely make it work, make it work, right? So,
1: and I mean, I mean, there's different discussions too, right? I mean, right now you have a seven, $800 calf, and two years ago we had a $50 calf, right? So, you know, your your investment looks a little bit different probably, um, depending on some of those other factors as well.
0: Yeah, I know the, uh, I've kind of heard the calf market maybe backed off a little bit, but who knows? Could be back up next yeah, week too. Depends on who's buying, yeah. but uh, um, that really t- changes your thought process when you're looking at that, that day old calf. And like in a week, you could be, you know, 700 bucks in my pocket. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. It depends what side you're looking at. The buyers are definitely thinking the calves are, are pretty expensive and the sellers are happy.
0: So, yeah. I and mean, I mean, that calf price is following all the way through right now, which is good because they need it when they're buying. <laughs> expensive calves like that but
1: uh, yeah i think there's also i mean there's always a risk too we're we're 16 months away from marketing that cap too right so yeah it's uh it's a risk that uh, you know the, the cap producers are taking
0: with the with the veal in the in the cross calves i know some people have been talking about plasma uh and milk replacer now, do you see that on dairy replacement heifers as well, or is that kind of more of a economic driver on on you know animals that are destined for the for the meat or for meat?
1: Yeah, I think that um, functional p- proteins or plasma, I think there's absolutely a place in in dairy replacements. I think there's a place in 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 veal and beef calves. Um, the the biggest reason that we would advocate for it would be kind of high high stress situations. Uh, So you're essentially supplying IgG uh, at a lower level. Um, Mm -hmm. So the the IgG of the the animal plasma is around 16 to 18%. Um, So you're still getting an immune response and there's still some, some value as far as the health goes. Um, And the other benefit to it is you're not necessarily sacrificing any gain. So we've done a few different studies uh, just internally that a few of them actually published in, in JDS, but, Uh, we didn't see any difference in in growth so you're not going to see an improvement in growth um, but you're not going to see less growth either so from a feed efficiency perspective uh, everything was the same so realistically you're you're probably bringing um, plasma into the into the scenario for more of the health benefits and then also as an interchangeable kind of milk protein as well so there's definitely times where plasma is a premium to add into milk replacer and there's times where you know it, it pulls in cheaper so it it can be used in in any situation i don't necessarily think there's always necessarily a need for it um but i think that it's definitely one of the most widely used you know additive we'll call it um across north america when it comes to calves and, and improving health and performance
0: yeah, how long has it been around? Like, I, th- I think I maybe started hearing about it five, six years ago. I don't know if it's been around longer than that, or if it's relatively novel. Or
1: yeah, it's been around. Well, that's a good question. I'd have to I have to circle back to you on that one, Keith. But it's certainly been around for for quite a while. I know the uh, the calf industry in the in the U.S. has been using it for years and years. It's I think it's something like fifty percent market share on calf ranches in in the U.S. Um, so it's definitely the most used additive in the US. It's just recently come to Canada. We started uh, selling some products with it um, probably been three, four years now, um, and seeing great success on, on, especially on the calf ranch type customers. And we also have quite a few dairies that are that are buying in as well. and, and it's just a, it's an education piece. It's not something that that everyone's used to seeing. I mean, you look at the tag and it says, uh, you know, it's a 26 protein, 22% from milk sources and 17% fat. And right away, they think, you know, for years, everyone's been telling me that non-milk proteins are, are a no-go, right? So it's it's just a conversation about, it's not necessarily a milk protein, but it's as good, if not superior to to the milk protein at that point at a very low rate, right? It's, you know, it's only in the formula yeah. at 5%. So you're not displacing a lot of the milk protein, um, but it's not to a detriment. It's not to be cheaper. It's it's to actually improved overall.
0: Health. No, and I think if if you look back years ago when it came from a non-milk source, like you're kind of questioning, like where's it coming from and can a calf digest it and, and things like that? Like there was more questions than answers. And it was just, I think it was pretty new and not really a commercial, like it wasn't known about in the industry, right? So people kind of, questioned it a little bit, but it, it just seems like, especially with these integrated growers, calf growers, your veal and your and your crossbred beef guys, like it's it it's seeing more prevalence in the market, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's uh, uh from all of our, our calf type grower customers, I would say ninety percent of them are on a, a functional protein product. Um and then we're not we're not marketing any wheat, soy stuff like that. So I think it just kind of goes to show, you know, when a producer makes a decision to try something, you know, are they sticking to it? And I think that's for us a good indicator that it's obviously working uh, in the, in the market. So
0: I want to shift gears maybe a little bit here. And what are the perspectives, I guess, on the, on the future of raising surplus calves? Like, do you see any issues with retail markets or processing or consumer acceptance or anything like that? Like, like what's the, What's your kind of view? Cause I know you guys are in that business as well. So
1: yeah, I, uh, I sit on the Veal board uh, as a board member. So this is something that we certainly have discussions about all the time, right? Like it's uh, historically, that's been a market for a Holstein calf and now we have uh, crossbreds in the picture as well. Um, so I think as an industry, I think we're doing a good job of making sure that we have a market for these animals. And I think you know, as as a veal producer, uh, you know, I'm proud that that we've been able to do that. I just could almost say single-handedly, you know, help with that issue for the f- past 10, 15 years. But I also think that you know, I personally, I'm not speaking on behalf of the veal board. I personally think that there's a there's a place for the crossbred calf too, right? And mm-hmm. and potentially, you know, at times of the year when when the veal calves are in less demand, or or at the same time that the beef calf is in high demand right so i think they can complement each other and i think it's a it's a benefit to the dairy industry to have both the veal industry there as a partner and and the crossbred industry as the beef industry as a partner too so i think it's it's important that we don't focus too much on one or the other um, from my perspective i think we need to to endorse both right because they're both a market and and i think it's it's good for the dairy industry to have that. It tells Mm -hmm. you know a good story. And I think the consumer wants to know that, you know, every piece on the farm is working. And obviously that's a piece that in the past, you know, potentially didn't work as well as it could have. So I think, you know, welcoming both, both industries is, is really important.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's amazing on how many crossbred calves you see, like just, just talking to producers in the countryside and a lot of these, their breeding programs now are based heavily like you hear producers breeding 60 percent of their herd to beef and 50 percent and you know there's still some producers that are aren't breeding any hardly any animals to beef but um it's amazing when you go around and see all these crossbred calves and then just the stinking value that they're bringing in right now and 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 part of that is is market demand like there's been a lot of drought through the through the central plains in the US and, and Canada through the prairies and the cow herd uh, like the beef cow herd has really just been decimated and like they've had record calls in 2022 and it looks like 2023 isn't going to be far off that so it's like where are we going to get our replacement animals for the feedlots right and the dairy producer said hey look at me over here we can do it
1: <laughs> yeah and 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 I I definitely think there's a place for it. Yeah. I guess I would would maybe turn the question around a little bit to you, Keith. Like at at what point as a, as an advisor on the farm, at what point, you know, do we see a potential where, you know, fresh heifers get, get really expensive. So, you know, producers are more likely to reintroduce more Holstein calves into the herd again. Um, And then what happens with those animals when, you know, we're now making more Holstein calves and, and we've maybe shifted away from the veal industry because we were servicing the crossbred industry and, and and sort of decimated that in the supply of calves there. Like, is there a point where you think that producers will actually shift back from the 60% to doing more Holsteins and, you know, potentially less sex demon or whatever the case may be. Um, but do you, is there, is there a point where that sort of tips?
0: I think we've seen it already. I think maybe six, eight months, a year ago, I think producers, maybe went to the far side of that and we haven't really seen a drop in heifer inventory per se but i think it's a two year it's a two year cycle right so we could be at the beginning of that like so we breed a breed a dairy animal january calves out october you know we're still another 22 months 2 years before that that animal hits back in the milking line and i think we're just at the early stages where producers maybe went a little too far and they're just kind of uh kind of brought it back uh a little bit um and you kind of see that like i'm seeing it in fresh cow prices like for the last i'm no good i have no concept of time sometimes but uh i'm going to say at least the last 2 years like fresh cow prices haven't really dropped below that 24 2500 for average ones like you've always got your ends of the spectrum where you're going to have some duds and you know you're almost better off to put them straight in the beef line but they are still getting sold as a fresh animal and you know maybe you're only going to get $1,800 for but then on the other hand you know we're going to see $3,500 for the for the real good ones but I think on average like you hear guys talking that are selling fresh animals you know 25 dollars dollars $3,000 still and especially for this time of year that's I'd say on the high side. And I just wonder if I don't know where these animals are going, whether they're going down the U S or they going to Quebec or they staying, you know, locally here in Ontario. I, I can't tell you that, but I just know that the value has kind of stayed up a bit on them when typically this time of year, we start to see those values drop a bit. So I, I think that like back to your original questions, I think producers had got to that point already and kind of, drew back in a little bit but it's relatively new that producers are doing this and it took a big uh mindset shift on it and so i think people are just trying to kind of feel that out where their happy medium is on how many replacements they should have on the farm but time will tell i guess i i I could be wrong on on the on whether producers hit that wall or not but uh just my sentiment from talking to producers in the countryside is is that so
1: i guess the uh, the question is how much how much profit is in that that fresh heifer right at what point does that fresh heifer actually become profitable enough that you know getting a, a little bit of a premium on your beef cap at birth you know does that ever offset i guess and and that's probably you know dependent on feed costs and you know yard yeah. costs, infrastructure all those pieces right
0: and that's the question because like if you look at a at a few like a week old or 10 day old beef calf and you're gonna get seven hundred dollars for and you've got very little work, there's a lot of margin in that. I don't know if you can recapture that margin later in life by time you've taken on the death loss and fed the thing and 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 housed it in, in yardage. Like is that yardage that you're gonna keep a two-year-old or or keep a heifer around that you're just gonna sell a surplus? Would it be better spent to either maybe say raise some cross calves up 2000 pounds and then sell them into a feed lot. I don't know that. I, I, my gut feel is that you might be better off to do that. But if every producer jumped on the bus and did that, there'd definitely be way more value in the replacement heifer. So right. it, it's, it's just going to be a balance, right? Like mm-hmm. the thing, the thing that I, and I've had this conversation with producers before and with the beef, like if you want to raise the beef, you got to realize like that turnaround's a lot quicker than what you would have on a on a fresh heifer. Like if you're marketing a fresh heifer to a sales to a sales barn that's going to sell it, you know, you're looking at if you're going to take it to a thousand pounds, you're probably looking at 11, 12 months of age and you're going to get a check for where it'd be 22 months. So it's a little bit, I would think maybe more advantageous on a cash flow perspective for a producer to, keep the replacement or maybe keep your replacements that you need on farm and then raise those extra beef calves because your turnaround on them is going to be half of what it would be to sell a fresh heifer to a, to a sales bar. Right. right? It's an interesting question. And from the outside looking in at the U S market, like they are very much more, we're only going to, we're only going to keep what we need the rest is going to get bred beef. And I think there's a good little, there's some good little revenue streams for that um, from their perspective, because the calves are valued at more if they want to keep them. A lot of times they don't because the highly intensive dairy areas usually lands too expensive to feed them. (laughs) Like they just, they don't (laughs) want to grow extra forage or feed. They're better off to sell them at a week old and send them to Kansas or Colorado or Texas to, where they can feed them and, and raise them a little bit cheaper. So
1: right. Right. And I think that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting thought process or question too, right? Like not every producer is gonna have the room to keep their beef calves back because you know we've got to raise our dairy or dairy replacements. And the question is, should we build another barn just so we can put beef calves in it? Or do we keep them for 10 days and make a bunch the same margin with zero work?
1: Right. Exactly. And then are we crowding our heifers and, and and everything else that goes along with it yeah. by feeding them for that extra, you know, three, 400 bucks in potential margin. Yep.
0: Yeah. And I, and I know, and I have clients that are raising replacement heifers and, and things like that. And it's, they've got the barn space to do it. They've got, you know, people that are buying their calves regularly, you know, calling up every week or every couple of weeks or once a month and saying, Hey, you got some, you got some animals for us. Because I know this might uh, go over like a lead balloon, but when people talk about $3,000 to raise a heifer, I don't think it's that expensive. I I think it's, it's probably a little bit more than it was, but I think you can have them, calved out and you got to realize you get the calf out of that animal too so there's a little bit of mm-hmm. either as a replacement heifer or beef cross on that so once you freshen it out you still get that calf too so there's some margin there but I think most heifer rearing programs that I have put together for people and we've done budgets on them are anywhere from 2 to $2,400, depending on if they're feeding replacer and how much calf grain and and what is their transition programs on those calves look like. Like there's a lot of different ways to feed those animals. And mm-hmm. I guess at the end of the day, you just got to put pencil to paper or get somebody like me to kind of click around on an Excel spreadsheet to see, you know, what, what it is, our actual cost production on it, because you can yeah, say more, one more thing. more
1: likely to shoot, shoot high. You know, yeah. when you're budgeting, when you're making decisions, decision, you're more likely to
0: yeah. always like, make sure when, that
1: you're covered, right?
0: And when I do stuff like that, like we use cash values on forages and things like that, and producers are raising forages on a cost production, and I know, like, within our, within our own group, like, there's a big discussion around some of that stuff, but just my per- perspective or point of view is, like, if you're growing double crop things and things like that, like it's just not as expensive to grow um, and it's relatively cheapish forage. So, you know, there's a little bit of uh there's a little bit of margin kind of built into that, but I always price stuff high as a worst case scenario. And if you can do it at the worst case scenario, you can do it at the best case scenario. So, Right. little well, yeah. stress test. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else coming down like the the calf pipeline that uh, is new or exciting in, in your world? I think, um, you know, we've, we've come out with some some pretty neat products on the,
1: on the gut health side, uh, looking at um, a product called lactoferrin. So lactoferrin is found in colostrum um, and it helps. It's, it's, a, it's a glycoprotein. It binds iron. Um, but we saw some really nice responses in, in, in overall gut health. And and villi health, so just being able to kind of maintain nutrient absorption following a stress challenge. So by 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 offering lactoferrin uh, at the onset of diarrhea, uh, we are able to see a nice uh, improved growth response eight weeks out after the diarrhea challenge. So I'd have to look back exactly, but I think is roughly um, eight pounds of additional gain um, by offering the lactoferrin. So that's something neat that we've we've come out, and I think that's probably ties into the, the colostrum discussion. And I know it's been a, a large discussion lately. I mean, I was at the American Dairy Science Association meeting and there's, you know, posters everywhere on colostrum. And, and you know, as an industry, we're investing a lot of time and money. And I think that's that's a great uh, spot to put that. Um, and so lack of parenting in colostrum is obviously at a high level. So is it one of the key components that we're able to isolate to, to see some of the same benefits? Um, and then looking at colostrum as a whole, I think it's definitely something that that uh, as, a, as a company we're looking at, you know, where does it fit? How long can we feed it? How much do we need to feed, to see those responses um, from a commercialization perspective, rather than, you know, just solely looking at, you know, what's the benefit of feeding, you know, half colostrum, half milk for the first two, two weeks. Like at what point do we not see that response? How much can we get mm-hmm. away with? Because, you know, there's, you know, if you want to spend $200 worth of colostrum, it's, by feeding it at that level, you know, does that make sense rather than feeding it, you know, a more moderate, moderate level and still seeing the same responses. So those are some of the areas that we're focusing on right now. Uh, We've done some oral rehydration work um, that we published looking at different buffers, um, different sugars. So uh, glucose absorption versus multidextrin absorption in the gut um, in in an electrolyte. Um, So we saw that glucose was absorbed within an hour of administration, whereas multidextrin uh, was absorbed kind of over a 24-hour period. Um, so we've kind of made some changes to to some of our offerings based on on this type of work. Those are kind of the more immediate stuff. We do have some trials going on right now looking at uh, fat levels in milk replacer as well. It's been a hot topic in academia, and I think um, there's, there's hypothesis out there that may not Mesh exactly with what we see is from a practical level on, on body weight gain, grain consumption. You know, we talked about high plain nutrition, milk, feeding 10, 12 liters at high fat levels. You know, what kind of suppression are we seeing? And and we're going to be coming out with some numbers to show, you know, we, so basically what we're looking at is a 17% fat a 24% fat, and then a 31% fat, and, mm-hmm. and we'll have body weight numbers, we'll have overall health and performance, uh, water intake, grain consumption. So I think that's that's kind of new and exciting. And I think from there, we'll be able to kind of develop or continue to sort of validate some of the products that, that we have out there and doing, you know, what's best for the farmer, what's best for the calf um, as yep. a result.
0: Well, I always find the fat thing interesting because in Europe, they're always kind of higher fat, lower protein, North America, we're higher protein, lower fat. And I just don't know. I don't know what's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think so. So our trial that we did was it was 128 calves. And then we had the three treatment groups and we did see some, um, we're just kind of analyzing the data now, but just kind of looking at it from a numerical perspective, uh, we did see some suppression in starter intake to go to the 31, like a significant amount of starter suppression. And so kind of, you know, a 31% dry matter fat is similar to where whole milk would be. Whole milk would be a little bit higher in, in the medium chain fatty acids. So, you know, there's a question of if that comes into play as well, but but basically by offering too much fat in a, in a climate controlled facility, so 15 degrees, um, we did see starter suppression. We saw less water intake and less overall gain. And so then it's the question of, you know, are you, are you seeing reduced room and development because of that starter intake suppression? You know, how does that all fit? Uh, so I think that'll be some really cool data that we'll have probably in the next six months. And then in looking at, you know, do we need to increase it? And then I think it kind of uh, leads into another discussion about, you know, okay, too much and 24 is kind of okay, but maybe a little bit high, then do we need to tailor it in a little bit more? Look at, you know, a 17, a 19, and 22, or 17, 20, 22, whatever the case may be. And because the other question about it is looking at osmolarity. So when you have more fat, and you have more protein, you lower osmolarity. And and that's another factor on how does that affect uh, you know gut health and things like that so those are some of the things that we still need to tease out are we seeing you know less days with abnormal fecal scores by feeding a higher fat um you know those are questions that i don't have answers to but we hope to kind of come up with in the next six
0: months yeah that question always interests me because i know like just looking at herds that are on whole milk like they just never they don't get the starter intakes but they get growth so yeah
1: and and the and the question is is what type of growth is that Right? Yeah. Is that creating mm-hmm. butter balls, or is that creating, you know, a nice lean heifer? Um... Yeah,
0: I don't mind a little butter ball at that stage. Life, so. <laughs> coming from the father, two kind of chunky babies. So, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, does it make does it make sense for? You're right. Like, like, where is that growth coming from? Are we getting good skeletal and lean muscle growth? Are we getting, you know, round little squatty heifers but i've seen some pretty mm-hmm. tremendous results off guys that are feeding whole milk so i don't know and i yeah. guess at the end of the day it's got to fit your production system and your labor and everything else that goes on on the farm too right so that's
1: a, that's a whole another podcast there
0: keith oh i i would love to get into that someday and just <laughs> get two people on either side and just mediate that that's <laughs> it yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 was very entertaining there, yeah, was there anything else that you uh, that you were could think of with the with calf raising and things like that that you're seeing out there right now?
1: Not not particularly. I think we kind of touched on the majority of it. I think somewhere that I'm I'm interested in is is finding a way to just mitigate that disease transfer uh, on mm-hmm. dairies because you know as the pathogens get stronger. I mean, Salmonella Dublin. So we got a trial going on right now looking at um, calves with prevalence of Salmonella coming in and then the number of calves leaving with titers for Salmonella Dublin. So I think that'll be really cool to see kind of, you know, what, what level are we actually seeing within the industry locally in Ontario? Yes. Um, and, and what effect does that have on the overall uh, health of the calves? Um, but those are some of the things that I think that's where it ties into, you know, just mitigating transfer by trying to do all in all out the best we can with what we have. And I understand that's an, another discussion too. Uh, it's easy to spend other people's money, but, you know, just just with what we can, how can we sort of mitigate those risks? Because I, I honestly don't think that the dairies in Ontario have struggled with Salmonella Dublin, like, you know, the veal producers and some of the the farms that are co-mingling, especially closed herds. Um, and I think that's where some some hard lessons might come down the road. And so the question of how can we um, mitigate those risks?
0: Well, I know when when farms do get it, it's a hard lesson because usually you don't know what it is, and then all of a sudden you get the test back and you've lost a bunch of calves already. And and I've seen it, you know, bigger animals too, you know, four or five hundred pound animals where they're they're going backwards. So it can it's not yeah. just affecting the babies. And I think I think you're right too. Like I think the next level for producers on on the calf rearing is just that health around the first you know three to five days you get them through that first week of life without being unscathed and those things just take off you don't really have to worry mm-hmm. about them as much you know i mean you get your crypto your coxies and things like that but if I mean, for pickup?
1: Af-
0: after a week you're generally not quite in the clear but you're less clear than you were three days earlier so thanks Aaron. and i uh I guess we'll wrap the podcast up there. It's been uh it's been great having you on and kind of sharing your insights and your experiences into your guys' business. I know uh you guys do a great job with uh with your product offering and and do a great service for the for the veal and the and the beef and the dairy industries here in Ontario and I truly appreciate you guys uh coming on the podcast today.
1: Well, I appreciate this podcast Keith and and appreciate you bringing me on. Uh it was a pleasure to talk about obviously something that I'm passionate about and something that, uh, you know, I like to to hear people's challenges and, and kind of discussion around it and, and see if we can move things forward and find better ways of doing things.
0: Thanks again, Aaron, and uh, we'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks, Keith, take care.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmers' Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed Supply Limited. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Spoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.